0: Hey, before we uh, get into the word this morning, could I uh, ask us just to pray together for just a moment? This this week, uh, Sovereign Grace pastors from all over the country and all over the world are going to be gathering for a conference this week. Uh, part of it begins on Monday, runs all the way through Thursday night and just, you know, you guys have heard me talk about some of this, but, you know, the last two years for guys leading churches has been the most unusual season of most of their lives that they've ever walked through. It, it's, you know, you guys know it's just been a strange world to live in. There's just been a lot of conflict, a lot of challenges, a lot of changes that folks have been going through. And so this is a gathering that I'm aware of. There, there's a number of pastors just that are gathering, just that they just need fresh wind in their sails. They need some encouragement. Uh, there 's been difficult and discouraging times for many, you know Phil and I were meeting this morning before uh, the service just to pray together about the service and just just aware sometimes God just needs to show up close to us in a way that just captures our attention right all of us have that that need in our lives more than just awareness of a Bible lesson, something about god showing up and letting you know i 'm with you. There are moments in our lives we just need that. So I want to ask you, I want us to pray together for the the pastors and leaders that are throughout Sovereign Grace that are gathering this week. But I also really want to ask you to take this with you this week. And and as the Lord reminds you, would you be praying for these gatherings uh, that begin, uh, as I said, there's there's a Council of Elders meeting that, that takes place. One delegate from each church comes on Monday. We work through a lot of just decisions for the movement and then uh, Tuesday through Thursday, uh, just the gatherings and teaching and just fresh envisioning for what we're doing uh, as churches. Okay, so let's just bow our hearts together and pray just for a moment. Father, we give you thanks that in your purpose, you have called each of our lives to something in particular that ushers in your kingdom in unique ways. Lord, that's true of every one of our lives. And so, Lord, we, we're grateful for that. And in your wisdom, you have chosen to involve human elements in the coming of your kingdom. And so, Father, we are aware that there are folks in our lives who have, have led in churches. They have taught and they have preached the word and they have led with their lives and they have cared for us. And then they've made an impact on our lives. And Lord, these folks will be gathering from the family of churches that we're a part of in this coming week. And and God, we want your presence to be rich among us. Lord, we want your impartation by the Spirit to do everything from console and encourage to embolden and enliven. Lord, to convict and to help, to correct and to inspire. Lord, be among us so that your kingdom may come in greater ways. Lord, these have been unusual days. We believe for yet unusual movement of your spirit in the days ahead. So Father, help us, Lord, help us as a church to pray for these folks and these leaders who are gathering this week. God, give us a burden to see you move in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. All right, well, last week, I'm going to finish our our little time of hanging out with the Reformation. We've, We've adjusted our... Reformation thinking to pull it from 1517 and the 1500s to pull it into 2021, and to be aware that Reformation's not just something that needed to happen way back when, when the church was really off course and there was all these massive problems going on. Then the church needed Reformation, but we're good today. Um, no, I think the the statement that the reformers made those 500 plus years ago that. We are reformed and always reforming. That suits us. That makes us aware that there are things in our lives today that still need to be reformed. And so this morning we want to talk about that. And I've introduced some some big words. And if you've been in the church for a long time, you're used to the fact that we like to use big words around here. Um, Words like justification. And today we're going to be talking about tampering with sanctification right the 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 two related words in scripture that I get this and and if you're kind of new to the church um there's a value in learning big words because sometimes when we're not really familiar with words that it forces us to learn what they really mean and I get that we're not a church that comes in and every every week it's you know, messages like three steps to your best life, how to make Monday better than Sunday. You know, it's like these are great devotional titles and and, and they do something to interact with our lives in meaningful ways. But the Bible's full of rich words that you are interacting with on Monday and every day of your life. You may not be realizing it, but hopefully you were here last week and you did realize you're interacting with the doctrine of justification, even if you've never heard of it. You are living your life every day trying to feel right with God, trying to get a sense of whether God's for you or he's not for you. And you've collected a bunch of ideas that tamper with that, that make you feel like he is or maybe he isn't. But how many of you guys can recognize maybe you've created your own recipe and God isn't abiding by your recipe? Maybe God doesn't relate to you on the basis that you, that you think He relates to you. And so it could be God's postured very different towards you than you're giving Him credit for, you understand, because you may not understand the doctrine of justification. But then there's this other doctrine of sanctification. And it's in the Bible all over the place, too. And it's interesting. Uh, There's a little bit of a a tension that's here in these two words. And well there's a tension in the in the phrase, reformed and always reforming. Because you hear something that's past tense and you hear something that's going on. That's a hard thing to manage. I don't know if you've thought that through. When you stare into the scriptures, there are things that are done. They'll never be undone, they are done. And then they're often in the same paragraph with things that are yet to be done or being done right now or ongoing. In our lives. And th- these are tensions that pull on each other. And so what you don't want to do with attention. Is you, you don't want to cut attention. In favor of one or the other. And that is the temptation of what we do. Right, there are certain things in our world. Can I just say this way. And in our world today needs to hear this. We're kind of obnoxious in this category. Because we don't get the fact. That there are certain things about life. That are not problems that are ever going to be solved. They are tensions that are going to have to be managed. So you and I live in a world that's trying to serve up some of this stuff, like there's, there's a way to solve this, right? Uh, popular real items, government. Most of us would agree that if you're going to collect a bunch of people together, we need to come underneath some kind of common sense of organized rules, community, boundaries, if you're just not going to live by yourself, the second you do that, you've created the concept of government. And if you empower government, you give government the power to influence a gathering of people. How do you know as soon as you give human beings power, they will corrupt that power? So this is what you start thinking like, well, if government means giving people power and they're going to corrupt that power, we'll just do away with government, right? That's an attempt to cut something how many of you guys recognize you can't do away with government unless you live on an Island by yourself that that would do away with the need for government. There is, I mean, this is the stuff you're hearing in your world today. Defund the police. Well, there's this concept called law enforcement. That means you give power to a group of people to enforce the laws of the land and you give that power to the police. So you have police enforcing laws. Anybody not like that? But as soon as you give power to people, people can abuse that power. And so therefore you have police enforcing laws and you have police brutality. And so do you you want to cut that? Just do away with the police? Defund the police? But this is what the world sounds like. It's, it's not that simple. There are things in our lives all around us. I mean, the whole mask and vaccine thing. I don't, you know, whatever side of that issue you're on, can you cut a little bit of slack to the idea that on one side, there's individual rights and on the other side, there's community good and they pull on each other and you don't get to cut that and say, well, no, it's only about the community good. So you as an individual get to give up all your rights for the sake of the community good. But then you can't go in the other direction either, can you? It's all about individual rights. You should have the right to do everything that you always want to do. right? I mean, come on, think this stuff through. Right? Do you feel that way about speed limits? I mean, let's face it. There are sometimes I need to be somewhere. And I don't wanna be late. And it's a priority and it's important. So at that point, it should be okay that I drove past your child who just got their driver's license and they're 16 years old, they're driving behind a car and I'm going 130 miles an hour past them. You should be all right with that. I need to be somewhere. But as a community member, you're like, I'm not all right with that. And if you were to hit my child, I'd be really, really ticked off. So I'm okay with the fact that somebody's got to pull these speed limits into reasonable boundaries and everybody's got to live by them. You can't cut some of this stuff. They're meant to live in tensions with each other and you have to manage that. So when you come to the Bible, there are tensions here. Do not cut them. There is a tension between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. And... There are theologians everywhere, and there are practical Christians everywhere who just want to snip that. They just want to force it all to one side. They want to make it all about everything God does and nothing about what we do, or they want to make it all about what we do and nothing about what God does. And when you set them in the Bible, they pull on each other. Right. So this is kind of a uh, this is a twenty twenty one thesis nailed to the to the door of the church here. Justification interacts with sin. I'm going to say works as well. We only put sin in the graphic here. Sin and works. Justification reaches towards sin and works and pulls on it in a particular way in the Bible. Sanctification reaches towards sin and works and pulls on it in a particular way as well. But they don't feel the same when they pull on it. And you have to differentiate that the Bible is saying both of these things. Because if you cross-pollinate these two words, you are going to be a miserable Christian. Questioning a lot about how God feels about you. How to manage your failures, your sin, what you should be doing. How many of you guys love that? You should be doing something as a Christian. Don't you love to come to church and then your list grew? Right? You came in here, you were behind on 80, 80 things in your life. You left after hearing a message, like great, got three more to do now. So excited that I came to church today. Uh, but yet that is in the Bible, right? So there is this justification, sanctification tension that we're going to explore today. Wayne Grudem and his Outstanding Systematic Theology. If you're a Christian, you should own that book. It's big, but it's, it's helpful. He says, The primary issue in the Protestant Reformation was a dispute with the Roman Catholic Church over justification. If we are to safeguard the truth of the gospel for future generations. We must understand the truth of justification. So don't leave this to the specialist. Don't act like some other Christians need to know this. If you're a Christian, you are transferring the gospel to others. That's what you do in your life. And if you're not doing that, you you are questionably whether you're a Christian. You are transferring the gospel to others. What is that gospel that you're transferring? How do you explain it? We define it as follows. Justification is, listen, an instantaneous legal act of God in which he, one, thinks of our sins as forgiven and Christ's righteousness as belonging to us. And two, declares us to be righteous in his sight. All right, so that's justification. This declaration, as we said last week, it's a light switch. It gets flipped. It's not something you're creating over time. It is instantaneous. God looking at what Jesus Christ did on our behalf, fully accepting it and fully applying it to our lives. Now, in a practical sense, I don't know if I'll put this in your outline, justification means favored status. I know sometimes when life gets bad, you question whether you're really under favored status, but justification means favored status. That never changes. You never become unfavored by God. It means 100% acceptance. It means God saying, I am with you to the end. It means Jesus saying, I will never leave you or forsake you. In other words, there's nothing you can do that undoes what justification has done for you. I am with you. I am for you. It interacts with imputed righteousness. The sudden 100% reception of righteousness. Whether you had a good week this week or not. Whether you feel distant from God or or not the switch has been flipped in the righteousness category not something for you to achieve sinclair ferguson says the man who knows he is justified is a man of unbounded confidence and assurance he knows that none of his failures can ever change the divine verdict it is guaranteed and settled forever in heaven This is what justification sounds like in the scriptures. Listen to this verse carefully. Listen to its mood. Listen to its tone. Listen to its tense. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, right? This is is where this is a light switch. There is one thing that took place in this category of justification, For all time, there's not anything coming after it. Not contributed by you or by Jesus or by anyone else. For all time, a single sacrifice for sins. He sat down at the right hand of God. Waiting from that time until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time. By a single offering... He has perfected for all time. So there is a a perfection that God grants. And where does it come from? Does it come from the life that you and I are polishing up and living and striving harder and harder and getting better and better at it? Is that where it comes from? No, by a single offering, by one offering that Jesus Christ did on our behalf by giving himself up for sin. And taking the penalty on himself by that single offering, he's perfected for all time. Those who are being sanctified. Hold on to that word. Down in verse 17, then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. All right, so there there is a this is where justification pulls on sin a certain way, it pulls it out of the picture. Right? I love the phrase that when John the Baptist looked up and he saw the Messiah, the anointed one coming. He looked at him and he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Doesn't leave a remnant. Doesn't leave stain marks behind. He takes it away. It's done. In this category, sin is done. Verse 18, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering For sin, it's been forgiven. We are justified. Righteousness has been given to us. There's no longer any offering. You and I don't broker with God to make up for the things that we did wrong. That's that's not territory you need to waste your time in. So so I did something terrible. This This is where guilt lives and hangs out. That sense of guilt. That sense of I've done something. That sense of shame hangs out in this category that I'm aware and, and, and the the paralyzing thing about it is you're trying to figure out what can I do to smooth this over with God? What can I do to make this go away? What can I do to fix the way this feels? Can I just tell you right now? There is nothing you can do. Either that once and for all time sacrifice, which forgave your sins, did it, or nothing can do it. Does this mean I shouldn't feel bad for what I did? No. Feel bad. Does this mean I shouldn't be aware that I did something wrong? No. The Bible doesn't have a problem telling you that you did something wrong. But what you do in response to that, what you feel obligated to do toward God to fix that, that's where justification makes that stuff out of bounds. But listen to the two things here. I want you to notice how these concepts hang out together. In this passage, clearly sin is dealt with and it's taken away. It's removed. It's Past tense, done. It's reformed. But then there's that little phrase in verse 14. By a single offering he has perfected for all times those who are being sanctified. So you are perfected, but you are being sanctified. You are reformed and always reforming, right? There is something completed and done in the Bible and there's something still going on in the Bible, and they're in the same passages with each other, right? Do you see that? Okay, Wayne Grudem goes on and explains sanctification this way. He says, sanctification is a progressive work of God and believers. If you were here last week, you already know, whoa, that sounds really different than justification because justification is a light switch. It is not progressive Justification is completely about what Christ has done on our behalf. Sanctification is about God and believers. That makes us more and more free from sin and like Christ in our actual lives. So sanctification has a very different goal in mind. It wants to take things to another level. It wants to improve things. It wants to take freedom and make us even more free. It wants to take the likeness of Christ that's in us and make us even more like Christ. So it's, it's got this agenda. It's pulling us along. It's a coach, if you will. It's trying to take us to the next place. The role that we play in sanctification is both a passive one in which we depend on God to sanctify us and an active one in which we strive to obey and take steps that will increase our sanctification. That's not how justification is, though, right? You don't do any of those things with justification, but you do that with sanctification. So there's a tension here when it comes to our our human activity, whether it's failure and sin or whether it's works. Justification pulls one way, and sanctification pulls a different way on these concepts. And and it's a massive mistake to try and fix that by snipping the tension. We can't force this to one side or the other. We cannot decide, well, I'm going to make everything about what what human beings do, about what what man does. And, And be careful how this creeps into your theology. When you begin to handcuff God, when you begin to install a ceiling on God, because God can only do what you have enabled him to do. So you always have to provide God with a bigger ceiling. So you've you got to do it right. you gotta, you got to stop doing that and start doing this. And more consistently as well, by the way. So there's that force to one side to where God can't do anything that, that we're not giving him permission or we're not creating the means for him to do. And that's just not how the Bible sounds. Don't get me wrong. There are moments in which God is interacting with our lives and he's waiting on some things to interact with. But God does so many things for no reason that we give him. He has reasons in himself. He has such a love for us that he refuses to have to make that love not get expressed because we're knuckleheads. I'm grateful that that God colors outside the lines. Of course, he creates the line, so it's not coloring outside the lines. It's just messing with my human understanding of what I deserve versus what God is doing in my life. But sanctification interacts with another problem. Sometimes we snip sanctification by ignoring that sanctification involves us in the equation. It talks about what we do and what we do not do. We have come up with phrases through the years, and they're well-intentioned phrases, and they're kind of partially right. right? So I've probably said these things, maybe you've said these things too. Nothing that we do matters. It's all been done by Christ. What are you talking about? You need to qualify statements that sound that big and that sweeping. When God sees me, he doesn't see me, he sees Jesus. Come on, I know most of us have used that phrase. That's true in one sense, isn't it? But it's not completely true. In the justifying sense, God sees Jesus. God does, There's nothing I can bring. There is nothing. My, my righteousness is as filthy rags. There's no merit for me to present to God. There's nothing to see. So when he looks and sees justification, he is only seeing what Jesus Christ has done on my behalf. But when God interacts with my life, it would be strange. It would make the Bible very hard to read, to act as though God never sees anything about you. He only sees Jesus. He has no idea what you've been doing lately. Does that even make sense? Of course, God knows what's, what you've been doing lately. Of course, God sees your sin. I'm not sure what we're after when we're trying to sort of present this feel to our lives that, that God doesn't see us. I think we're trying to get relief from our sin, right? I'm trying to get relief from my sense of failure. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get somehow the idea that God is for me no matter what I've done. Ah, I don't blame you for wanting that. You should want that. How do you get it? The doctrine of justification. You don't get it by creating something that's really not in the Bible. It will haunt you. As part of you is saying, yeah, that's kind of ridiculous. Yeah. right. so here's what the Bible sounds like. When the Bible puts on and uses vocabulary words around sanctification, it, th- these words can sound like this. Striving, mortifying, abstaining, putting off and putting on. Right? So all this stuff is staring down our lives and seeing sometimes we're out of bounds. Sometimes there are attitudes and actions in our lives that God is saying, not okay. Don't do that for another second. So obviously God sees something that he's not okay with about my life. And I, I need to have room for that, right? Let's fly through a couple of passages here just to get a feel. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. It says, for this is the will of God. Your sanctification, right? Big word. What do you mean by that, Paul? Well, I mean this. That you abstain from sexual immorality. You can't read that and think, well, it's all about Jesus. This is not the Bible telling Jesus to abstain from sexual immorality. This is the Bible telling me to do that. So I actually got some, some game in this moment. Abstain from sexual immorality. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. So the the Bible actually speaks to us about self-control, about boundaries, about living life and having some boundaries for our behavior and our attitudes. So the Bible's not having a problem with that. Not... In the passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. So the Bible summons us to to be aware of how we're treating other people. Whether we're treating them in a way that God is pleased or he's not pleased with that. For God has not called us for impurity but in holiness. So there's a call from God that is in this category of holiness that we learn that there's a righteousness imputed to us from Christ who has done all these things on our behalf that we could never do for ourselves. But now this is describing holiness while it's instructing us, don't do that and do this. Stop doing that and begin to do this. So I can't change the tone of the Bible here. This this is what the Bible sounds like, Romans 6.13. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God. Hebrews 12, verse 14, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. What do you do with that? This sounds like obtaining the grace of God has something to do with what you do. But it doesn't sound that way when justification talks about the grace of God. When justification talks about the grace of God, it presents a grace that chases you down while you're an enemy of God, running at full speed away from him to possess your own life for your own purposes. The grace of God chased you down and grabbed you. It doesn't present you obtaining the grace of justification. But in this verse, we're actually doing something here. So the Bible sounds like there, there's some do's and don'ts. There's some boundaries in which you and I live. There's some effort on our part. So if you surveyed those in the Christian kingdom these days, the older folks, uh, this, this category would come up under, under the concern for legalism. Right. If, you, if you drift into this category, if you guys have been around the church world for a while, you'll remember legalism. Yeah. Have anybody, you guys noticed that you don't hardly ever hear that word anymore? When was the last time you picked up a book written in the last five to ten years and heard legalism being unpacked and discussed? Today's Christian culture, it's doing something different with boundaries, and you ought, and you're supposed to. It's ignoring them. So years ago, generation mine and a little older overdid it in this category and did create issues with legalism. Today, that's, nobody needs to be arguing as much about legalism as much as, did you notice the Bible has an opinion? Did you notice the Bible actually speaks to that in a way that might be different than the common culture or the way in which you're speaking about it? Right, it's a very different feel. But this is how the Bible sounds. Colossians chapter 3. Verse 1, notice these things hang out together, these reformed and being reformed. If then you have been raised with Christ, past tense, accomplished thing, you won't undo it. Seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died, right? Done deal. Deal. There's a death that took place in the past tense of our lives that is completed, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. And then there's this doing part, this still being reformed part. So therefore you put to death, verse 5. Therefore what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So we, we we're called... To make decisions, we're called to shed some things. We're called to pursue some things in the Bible—the same Bible that justifies us completely without talking about what we have done or will ever do. Wayne Grudem goes on and says, "Unfortunately, this this passive role in sanctification, this idea of yielding to God and trusting Him to work in us, to will and do for His good pleasure, is sometimes so strongly emphasized." that it is the only thing people are told about the path of sanctification. Sometimes the popular phrase, let go and let God, is given as a summary of how to live the Christian life. Can I just rescue that phrase at the same time incriminate it? There are moments in which the, when you are overemphasizing your human activity, that, that it would be appropriate for somebody to turn and you and say, hey man, you just need to let go and let God. But that is not a good summary statement for all of the Christian life. So be careful how you use phrases like that. He says, but this is a tragic distortion of the doctrine of justification for it only speaks of one half of the part we must play and by itself will lead Christians to become lazy and to neglect the active role that scripture commands them to play in their sanctification. Let me just give us a, a little bit of a moment of cultural awareness. In the church... You know, the road leading up to the Reformation in the 1500s uh, traveled a very different path than the one that, that our current culture is on. So if you were to stress, what are the issues in the 1400s leading up to the 1500s that caused this great cry for Reformation? It's a different set of issues than the ones that are in our world today. So we don't exactly need the same exact Reformation that they did. We, we need Reformation, but our Reformation is being informed by some other things. All right, let, me, let me give you my analysis of what brings us to this moment where some of these ideas need to be aware that they're influencing our, our biblical understandings. Um, if you analyze the last century, about mid-century, guys like Norman Vincent Peale, who became popular, installed ideas about positive things in a way that really kind of wasn't present uh, in, in popular culture. So there began this positivity movement, it, it moved into all kinds of spheres of life. One of them moved into psychology. Psychology began to be affected by what it was looking for to help us fix the world and how it was broken. Eventually, you get the self esteem movement where feeling positive about yourself began to be this major priority that to rescue people from the self destruction in their lives, we, we need to help them think better about themselves. So, that was a rescue moment. And then towards the end of the century, the idea of tolerance became a massive issue. Isn't it funny that nobody tolerates anybody anymore? That's changed, hasn't it? Right now, man, you can be canceled and protested in a second. But in the 80s and 90s, tolerance was the buzzword. And if you had such a strong opinion about what other people should be doing, you became taboo. You shouldn't be imposing your view. That's up to them. Every person has the right to make their own decisions, and you should not be imposing that stuff on others. And then the information age came along, and our lives went digital, and everything that we do got broadcasted. And so now you have everybody's value system on display in pictures and in activities, and so you could be watching somebody one day just thumbs up Mother Teresa. And then the next day, thumbs up Cardi B. And you're kind of left with, uh, what do you really believe? And so we, we have lived publicly and we have modeled things publicly that have given a certain feel to behaviors. There's lots of behaviors out there today that are being put in social media that people used to feel like I shouldn't even let anybody know I do that or that I saw that or that I subscribed to that. But today it's all being published. That's a little bit confusing, right? You stare onto these things and it's confusing. All right, one more thing. The construction in the last five, six, seven years, using words like toxicity, fragility, and emotional safety. All right, these are new words, right? These words, you know, toxicity used to be that thing that was in some garbage dump somewhere. Now it's people, people are toxic. People with their views on certain things and their opinions could have a toxic impact on me as a person. The idea of fragility, that we're all so fragile and being exposed to ideas could really have a damaging effect on who we are as personal people. Right. A couple years ago, a book came out called The Coddling of the American Mind. It's, an in, it's a very interesting read if you're into reading interesting books like that. Uh, this was a critique done by the Wall Street Journal, pointed this out. It said, for most of the past few decades, college students have been proponents of free speech despite occasional bouts of protest and indignation. Right? When I was at LSU, there was a place called Free Speech Alley. And people would stand out there and give speeches, right? We'd stand out, we'd present the gospel, and people would yell back at you and disagree and lay claims against what you were saying, etc. But something changed about five years ago. Students began demanding trigger warnings for certain material in their classes. Some demanded that anything triggering be removed entirely from the curriculum so that no one might feel Traumatized. These, these are classroom discussions. People are feeling traumatized by classroom discussions. They lobbied for safe spaces where they could avoid being exposed to uncomfortable ideas. What is new today is the premise that students are fragile, said the authors of The Coddling of the American Mind. When you ball all this stuff together and get us to this moment as Christians who are interacting with the Bible in a certain way, uh, our culture is promoting an aversion to interacting with personally unsettling things. Anything that begins to make us feel unsettled, question ourselves, uncomfortable. We have been taught that's to be avoided. That's toxic. That's not good you know, I, that's, I'm fragile. That could have an impact on me. That, that's not a good thing. So for a variety of reasons, it's become harder to interact with sin and works because they can feel negative to us. Now, I would just challenge you to do this. Just go back and read the New Testament and see how the New Testament doesn't flinch in these categories, it doesn't tiptoe around. I mean, I find myself tiptoeing around. And, and, and that's not wrong. I just think I'm, I'm trying to be sensitive to the cultural influence that's always among us. But, but the Bible doesn't tiptoe around when it turns around and says, kill that, mortify that, don't do that, strive for this. It doesn't even qualify it. It doesn't even turn around and say, oh, but while you're doing that, don't forget the doctrine of justification. Don't feel bad. It doesn't do any of that. It just speaks about it like that's normal. As though God could speak about sin in our life. God could speak about works to be done in our lives. And he doesn't feel like that's a taboo subject. But it feels weird today. It just does. Because we live in a world that makes it feel like if you start to feel bad about something about you, that's, that's, that's a bad thing. I, sh- I should never feel that way. No, you should pull the doctrine of justification and the doctrine of sanctification into that moment with you and see how the Bible helps you navigate feelings, the realities of life being lived, things that we're called to do. So my next, last section here is managing sin with the help of two friends, justification and sanctification. Managing sin, Let me let's also manage works here as well. Both... Interact with works and with sin. And we need to pull them both together, have a conversation with them both to help us in this moment. So I'll give you two passages that are great examples of this Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. All right, so whenever we find God crushing, boasting, which he does, and he comes right out and tells you that's what he's doing, we, we are living in that justification realm where God is saying, I, this is so much not about you. It is about me. It is about what I have done is about my perfection of doing everything that needed to be done in categories that you got nothing to offer. I've totally done it. And, and you wouldn't even come to me unless I did something in your life for even that to happen. So anything you've done toward God is because of God. But then you keep reading, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for Good works which God prepared before Him that we should walk in them. The Bible doesn't hesitate to put both of those in the same sentence, to put justification and sanctification in the same sentence for us. I think I wrote this in your outline. Justification assures us that salvation is by grace through faith. Apart from works. It's the Greek word, ergon. It means toil. means deeds and doing and labor and work. It means human activity. So we are saved apart from the human activity and our own striving, our own contribution, our effort or our consistency or anything else. We are saved apart from that. But then the same sentence turns around and says, sanctification assures us that salvation creates a new life that includes Ergon. Human activity, striving, doing, laboring. The same word is used. In one sense, it's used to say, hey, don't think that this has anything to, you, to do with you being justified. But then it turns around and uses the same word and say, oh, but it does have to do with your life. So is it reasonable for us? You know, I put, I'm an engineer by background, so I use math equations a lot. Um, so here's my math equation. Grace plus faith... Equals salvation. But where do I put the works? Where do I put works in this? So the problem with the equation is if you put the works on the left side of the equation. If you somehow import grace plus faith plus a little bit of works. Maybe just a little bit. You don't have to do much. Just a little. Jesus will do 99%. If you put it on the left side of the equation, the equation is wrong. but it belongs somewhere on the right side of the equation. That this salvation that comes to us, it does something so powerful and so profound to us that it produces another life. Now, I I do got to tell you, I used the illustration of an oven last week. That does kind of look like this. You know, you're really hot, you're on a streak, you're doing great, and then you're crashed and you're not doing well and you're struggling right now. And then two years later, you're in a great place, Right. That's what sanctification can look like. you know. Ideally, it's, it should look like a squiggly line on its way up. Because God is continuing to work in our lives. But there is a place for works in that category. So that's our thought in that category. Thus, we're not to eliminate works from our vocabulary. We're just trying to keep works in the right place. There are things that we do and that we're supposed to do. There is a life to live. There are purposes to fulfill. There is fruit to bear. There is a mission to be on. All that's true for us. And you and I can't develop some safe place, fragility approach that says, yeah, but if there are things for me to do, there means there are things that I'm failing to do. And if there's a mission to be on, that means I'm probably failing in some way to be on that mission. Ah, really? That's where you go with that? It seems obvious that anything that we could do, we could fall short of doing. The Bible's not shocked by that. It's enabling us to live in a category of activity by dealing with the punishment and the severity of sin separating us from God. It deals with that in justification. And then it turns us loose to live life. And and listen, there's some good stuff in sanctification. There are some things, and I hope you, you do get this, that sanctification has taken my life in categories that were here years ago and that they're here now. And I I can look back and celebrate, I'm not who I once was. That thing that used to control me, it doesn't control me anymore. Now there are other things over here that do. And I'm trusting that God as he's at work is gonna take me to another place in that category too. But there's, there's things about a mission to be on. There are things that you and I are designed to strive for, to spend our energy on, to love and to do in excellent levels. Some of those are just being stewards of the things that God's put in your life. Some of those are using the gifts that God's put in our lives. We need to see fruit in those categories. That's a means of encouragement. We need to see that God is alive in us and actually doing some things that are progressing that the kingdom is coming in a certain way, that I'm becoming a person more like Christ. Those are encouraging things in our lives. Oh, yeah, but, but Keith, those are dangerous places too because you could fail. Yes, you could. I don't know what to do for you. Yes, yes, you could. Good luck. I mean, <laughs> But the Bible doesn't say, well, because that feels unsafe, you don't do it. No, it, not only does it say do it, it summons us to do it. As though that's okay and right and healthy in God's plan. One last passage. This one deals a little bit more with the sin component and the works component. 1 John chapter 1. Verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. Our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Right? John's tilting his hand. Who are you speaking to? The the unbeliever who doesn't even believe in God who just walked in Walmart five minutes ago? Is that what this passage is directed to? No. My little children. Those of you... In the kingdom, like-minded, walking in kingdom purposes like me. I'm writing these things to you. Really, John, why? So that you may not sin. Oh, I didn't know sin was a deal anymore. I thought justification had just taken that away. Well, maybe John didn't know that. Of course he knew that. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. In other words, we we, we live in the works that he's called us to do. Perfectly? Well, no, we just got finished saying, if anyone does sin by neglecting some works, yeah, by not getting around to the mission on the kingdom scale that you ought to. Remember I told you a couple weeks ago, we could get thrown into a massive guilt trip right now. You know how easy it is? Not just to point out to you the things that you know you did last week, but to start highlighting the things that you still haven't gotten around to doing after all these years you've known Jesus this long and your prayer life is what? Anybody feeling guilty yet? People dying and going to hell on the other side of the world and you're doing what? There's lots to be neglected here, but... If anyone does sin, we have an advocate, and he has provided propitiation. By this we know that we've come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way which he walked. All right, so let me pick up our two friends here. Justification speaks of sin in absolute, legal, definitive ways that are dealt with by Christ alone. That's what justification does. So in this passage, if we sin, he is our advocate. We have an advocate. That's a legal term. We have an intercessor. We have one who pleads our cause before the judge. And you understand. No one in the universe can get access to the judge and they've got nothing to plead. What am I going to do? I'm going to come plead something I did that undid something else that I did wrong? No, I I need an advocate who is a sinless advocate who has access to the Father, who can stand in his presence on my behalf and plead my case. And the Bible tells me I have that. So if I sin, I have an advocate. But not just an advocate. He is our propitiation. That's a big word, right? I'm sure you used that last week. He is our atonement. He is that which satisfies God when we have sinned. And there's no one else who can be that. No one, not me, not anybody else in human history can satisfy God. So if I sin, and I will, and I have, I have an advocate. And I have a satisfaction with God that nothing can take from me. So listen, I can feel bad that I sinned. I can want to have a new game plan for tomorrow, but I have an advocate and I have a propitiation with God. God is satisfied in this moment by justification completely. But then sanctification sounds a little different when it pulls on these things. Sanctification speaks of sin in the daily spaces of our lives that require us to participate. right, verse five and six, chapter one. There's self-awareness with regards to our walk. This is the message we've heard and proclaimed to you that God is light. In him, there's no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Sanctification has a sense of awareness. You and I aren't oblivious to the fact that I am practicing something that's dark right now. If I have become that, I have a problem with my understanding of sanctification. Sanctification comes along and says... Uh, God is light, and in him there's no darkness at all. Are you trafficking in something dark? Are you welcoming something dark? Are you applauding something dark? Are you around something dark? Sanctification comes along and says, that's not all right. There's confession of our sins, not ignorance of them. Right, Chapter 1, verse 8. If we say we have no sin... We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us. If we confess our sins, well, the only way you can confess your sins is if you're aware of them. Wait, but I thought justification had taken sins away. Yeah, that's what it does. In the justification category, it fully does that. But then sanctification comes along and says, hey, that right there, why don't you acknowledge that to God that you recognize that's sin, that's wrong. Take possession of that. Own it. Stop ignoring it. Quit having other people have to point that out to you and you keep ignoring it, right? The Bible's not okay with any of that because sanctification is pulling on it. There's change in sinful actions and in the manner of our walk. Right? chapter two, verse one, that you may not sin. The Bible cares about that. Chapter two, verse three, we keep his commandments. Chapter two, verse six, we walk in the same way in which he walked. All right, the worship guys, you guys can come on back. I think I put this, this little note. What if you took all the ones that I just listed under sanctification and you pulled these into the justification category? You'll create the worst kind of Christianity. The issues of our awareness, the issues of our confession, the issues of our walk, and whether we're obeying God and in his commandments, that you pull those into the justification category and you will get paralyzed and you will live this miserable existence of constantly trying to feel like you're right with God. But the thing that makes you feel right, you've confused it. Justification makes you feel right with God because it makes us right with God completely. And it doesn't then require the Bible to be silent about anything about our lives, like works or sin. Let me give you two last thoughts from smart guys like Sinclair Ferguson on getting justification right. He says Martin Luther once said the doctrine of justification was the article by which the church stands or falls. Not only is it the article of the standing or falling church, but it's also the standing or falling Christian. Probably. More trouble, more trouble is caused in the Christian life by an inadequate or mistaken view of, the doc, of this doctrine than any other. When the child of God loses his sense of peace with God, finds his concern for others dried up, or generally finds his sense of the sheer goodness and grace of God diminished, it is from this fountain that he has ceased to drink. That's what what a spiritual doctor would say to you if you had those kinds of symptoms. He would say you you don't have enough vitamin justification in your system. You're not taking in enough justification for that to affect your soul in these categories. But then to get the doctrine of sanctification right, Ferguson goes on in his same book a couple of chapters later, he says in the previous chapter, We began to consider the various conflicts in which the Christian is engaged. The enemies we face attack us from outside our own hearts and move inward with insistent force to draw out our affections towards themselves and away from our Lord Jesus Christ. But their power rests on a further factor, namely the landing ground they are able to find within our own lives. The cause of our battle within is the continuing presence of indwelling sin. Do you get how different this is, how it sounds different? Justification takes sin out of the conversation. Sanctification interacts with indwelling sin, which is there every day. We must affirm in this context that crucifying sin is a central practice, practical issue in Christian experience. This neglected area of truth must be recovered and in our present culture must be taught to younger and older Christians alike. Undoubtedly, one of the reasons some younger Christians make shipwreck of their faith is because they have never heard how to deal with indwelling sin or what is worse, have been encouraged to see it as an irrelevance. It is one of the signs of our morally confused church life today that there is so much hesitation here. I know those are big words and it's a lot to take in, but you and I live in this space every day. We live every day interacting with the doctrine of justification and the doctrine of sanctification. We don't get to jettison one or the other. We get to live with them both. And so today, Let's see if the Holy Spirit would lead us just for a moment into into how can we appropriate and receive something from him today in this category. Let's, Let's stand up together. Father, over 500 years ago, Church was tampering with the doctrine of justification and with the doctrine of sanctification. For today, we have not escaped that tampering. We are reformed and we are still needing help and reform. So, Father, perhaps today there are some of us here struggling. Getting these areas healthy in our lives and receiving the the benefit and the good of what you have taught us in your word. Maybe you're here this morning and you've been tampering with sanctification by ignoring growth and change in your life. Are you growing as a believer? Are you changing? as you walk with Christ? Are you a different person today than you were last year? Is there more terrain that the Holy Spirit has conquered in your heart so that there is larger faith, agreement with him? Areas that are sinful have been put away. This is not a question about whether you're practically perfect. It's, it's just, are you growing? If we're not growing, maybe we're ignoring this doctrine. God wants us to grow. He wants us to change. Maybe you're here and you've been tampering with sanctification by not not confessing your sin and pursuing repentance. Think for a moment. God has this vehicle to get sin off of us in the daily spaces of our lives. And that vehicle is the confession of sin and turning from it. So when was the last time you confessed your sin to God? Which would mean you intentionally stared at it and you let God tell you, hey, that's not all right. And that is what you've been doing lately. And you let God speak to you that way and you turn to him in brokenness and you agreed with him. That's what confession does. It's not you making up accusations about yourself. It's just coming into agreement with God. even tampering with sanctification by accusing God of putting a guilt trip on you huh. guilt is terrible I know it shame is awful but can I just say you don't ever want to accuse God of putting a guilt trip on you because he put all of your guilt on his son he crushed his own son Guilt has to do with whether you're right with God, not whether you feel bad about something you did. It's about whether you're right with God, whether you're accepted by the divine judge of eternity. And we need to agree with God on that. It cost God his son's life to secure the ability for you and I to say, I am not guilty. So when God comes along and says, you should do this, or you should do that. Do not respond to God with this idea that you're, quit putting that guilt trip on me. Those are awful words to come out of our mouths. But I get, we feel bad about things that we're not doing that we wish we were. Right. if we sin, we have an advocate and one who satisfies God. Be mindful of that as we feel bad about what we're doing and what we're not doing. But don't tamper with sanctification. Don't silence it. Don't try and make it go away. Fix something else in your life. But don't jettison that. Just pray for us before we close. Lord, for every person here who calls you father, has come to know you. Lord, there exists in our hearts an affection for you, a desire toward you that makes it really hard when our lives go sideways and we become selfish, neglectful. God, there is this sense, call it whatever you will, but it's just a bad feeling guilt, shame, regret. God, we need help with that because those are real feelings, Lord, for me and for everybody here. God, help us to richly understand these big words. Because they leap into that moment with us. They bring to us an awareness of our justification and our rightness with you that can never be changed. Lord, that fosters confidence and assurance right here, right now in our lives. And then we are told about a God who has more for us more in our experience, more to grow in, more purpose to be fulfilled. More mission to be on, more fruit to bear, more light to overcome darkness. Well, that's the voice of sanctification. It's the voice of your spirit telling us that you're at work in us right now to will and to do of your good pleasure. So, Father, would you help us stare at these things? Lord, we don't want to neglect one, we don't want to cut the tension here. God, we want both of these things to be at work in our lives. And Lord, where we have struggled, help us. Help us study these big words. Help us stare at these deep passages. Lord, help us. Because every day, God, I need help with justification and sanctification. And that's never gonna change until I'm with you face to face. So Lord, help us. And may we bring glory to your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great week. Pray for us while we're gone this week at the pastor's conference. Thank you so much. Go saints.